Well, as we continue in worship here this morning, I'd like you to make your way down to Mark chapter 9. Uh, Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 50. Uh, And as you make your way there, I'd like you to consider how our culture thinks of uh, a person's status. How do you evaluate personal status? Uh, Basically, it comes down to four things, right? Brains, beauty, bucks, brawn, right? If you got all four of them, you're good, right? Uh, and, and if you got beauty and you got bucks, I mean, in the eyes of most people, you're really significant, right? If you got all four, man, you're the golden child, right? Uh, but that is how our culture evaluates people. And so when men meet one another, they will say this. They'll say, hi, I'm Joe, and you are, and what do you do? And we're seeking not just information, but to find out where we lie on the pecking order relative to each other, right? Ladies do it too. Um, Maybe they don't ask, um, what do you do? They ask, oh, so what's your husband do? Right? If he's a banker, ooh, you know, Caterpillar executive, ooh, you know, you must be somebody important, right? Oh, a lot of, in fact, a lot of times women will say to one another something like this, well, I'm just a housewife, okay? They're saying, I don't have status as the world defines it, right? Uh, there's no such thing, by the way, ladies, as just a housewife. Um, we saw last week, godly women are in short supply, and those who will raise their children to be godly men and women, are in shorter supply, right? Um, the world has, has a different kind of measurement for status than we do. Uh, in fact, for some people, status is determined not just by, you know, the four Bs, brains, bucks, beauty, brawn, uh, but it's also determined by geography, right? Where you live. So if you live in this neighborhood or that zip code, you're a a person of higher status than someone who lives elsewhere, right? How many of you have been to New York or know a New Yorker, right? Most New Yorkers I have ever known that are dedicated New Yorkers think that the world ends somewhere west of the Hudson River, (laughs) okay? And that any place between L.A. and New York is like the land of people who are barely evolved, you know, like they're a few back on the National Geographic chart, right? Uh, out here in flyover country, we, we uh, don't have all of our teeth and the, these things, right? Um, <laughs> um, and if you've met New Yorkers, you know that, right? They, they have a view of themselves as this, these exalted personages, right? Um, and of the rest of us as a bunch of rubes. Uh, and, you know, there are rubes around here, but I've met some New Yorkers who are too, right? But some, for some people, status is determined by how you live and where you live, how much money you have, how nice looking you are, right? But the Bible does not, ev- does not evaluate people that way at all. 
It doesn't consider intelligence. It doesn't consider financial status. doesn't consider looks. doesn't consider physical strength. doesn't consider geography. doesn't consider any of that to be important. In fact, Jesus offers a pretty radical reordering of our priorities and our view of what is really significant. If you look at um, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33 with me here, look at this. When they came to Capernaum, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell and if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, Jesus has done this long swing to the north. He's gone up into Caesarea Philippi, and then into Mount Hermon, and then back to Caesarea Philippi, and now he's back in Galilee. But as we saw last week, he's keeping it secret. He's not announcing again that he is back in Galilee because his ministry in Galilee is over. And from here, you're not going to see Jesus do a large number of miracles as he did in Galilee. You're going to see him set his face in the direction of his ministry toward Jerusalem, which is where he is headed. And because he is headed toward Jerusalem and he's only got just a few days, really, left with his disciples, he's trying to give them all of the content that he can because they're going to need it as soon as he gets to Jerusalem and is crucified and killed. And so Jesus is back in Capernaum where he's done a whole lot of miracles and everything Because Jesus knows the time is short, everything becomes an opportunity for him to teach his disciples and to give them something that's going to sustain them after he's gone. And so uh, Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, and the disciples are walking with him on the road, and they're having an argument. Because again, as I've said before, they still don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. And they're still thinking political, military ruler in Jerusalem 
right now. They're not thinking about that happening in a large gap of time, which is when it's going to take place. And so they're saying, well, you know what? I'm the smartest, so I should be secretary of state in the new cabinet of the new king. Yeah, well, I may not be the smartest, but I'm the meanest, so I should be secretary of defense. Oh, uh, yeah, well, I'm savvy with numbers. I should be Secretary of the Treasury. You get where I'm going with this? This is what they're having the, the discussion about. Well, I'm going to be Chief of Staff. I'm going to be better than all of y'all. <laughs> okay? I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be the one that Jesus entrusts to hire and fire all the rest of you peons. And they're having an argument back and forth, and they get to this house in Capernaum where Jesus is staying with his disciples. And Jesus says, so what were you talking about, guys? And they're embarrassed. And so they don't say anything. They just keep it quiet. And Jesus says, Jesus does something that the rabbis did, which is interesting. Whenever a rabbi was going to, a Jewish rabbi was going to teach, what he did was he did not stand like I'm doing. He would sit, and the, those he was teaching would stand. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> okay. Um, but when a Jewish rabbi would teach, he would sit down. And so that's what Jesus did. He sat down to signify to his disciples, I'm going to teach you something. So listen up. And he calls the 12, and he says this, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last servant of all. Now, something you need to know, there's two words that gets translated servant in the New Testament. There's the word diakonos, which is the word that we get our word for deacon from. And there's the word doulos, and that's the word for slave. Okay, And the difference in nuance is is this, that in the one case, a diakonos is a willing servant, someone who is doing it because they want to. A doulos is someone who is who belongs to someone else and has to because they're being compelled. You understand what I'm saying? Here Jesus says that if you want to be first, you must be last, and the diakonos the servant, the willing servant of everyone else, okay? Uh, how many of y'all have kids or have had kids? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, when you asked them to do chores, immediately said, why, yes, Father, I would love to. Yes, Mother dear, that would be wonderful, Okay. Uh, if you get obedience at all, many times it's compelled obedience, right? You will do it or you will go to your room. You will do it or you'll get a swat. You understand what I'm saying? Compelled obedience, right? Compelled obedience is still, still good to a certain level, right? You have to teach and train your kids to obey and submit whether or not they like it, right? But it'd be a whole lot better if they were more of a willing servant. Amen? Amen. That's what Jesus says that he is aiming for, that what the kind of people he is looking to have as his followers are people who are willing servants, not grudging servants. Not people that you have to make do this, but people who 
do it out of their own heart desire to serve. He says, if you want to be great and important and mighty in my economy, guess what? You're the one who looks out for everybody else's needs. You want to rate high on my scale? Fine. The greatest is the one who serves the most. Uh, He takes a little kid and pulls him into his lap. And he says this, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, why does he pick a kid? It's because in the Greco-Roman world, to be a person of status was to be an adult. Okay? Children rank just above slaves. In fact, you could, in the Greco-Roman world, and people did do this, abandon your child by the side of the road and not face a legal penalty. Okay? Children were not highly valued. And before we get chronologically snobbish, you know, and think that somehow our society is better, consider that we have murdered a million children every year since 1973, which puts the Roman world to shame, I'll tell you. Okay? So children were not highly valued. And Jesus says, if you want to be a person of great status, welcome someone in my name, because, in other words, because you know me, who is of very little status, who is considered to be of very little value. You know, within, the, with, within uh, even Christendom, sometimes we start to think in terms of a sliding scale of job importance, right? Preacher, really important. Missionary, way more important, okay? Person who makes cookies for VBS, well, you know, I, uh, okay? Jesus says, whoever welcomes a little child in my name, Whoever, in other words, embraces a kid and shows him or her love on the basis of the fact that they know Christ receives not just that child in love, but receives Jesus. And receives not just Jesus, but the Father himself. In other words, there are no little people and there are no little jobs. Does that bear any resemblance to our world? No. Okay? If you're the CEO at Caterpillar, you get treated with honor and respect many times. If you are the guy who's, who is the dust mop engineer, okay, going around sweeping floors, do people rise in your presence? I bet not. But in God's economy... The one who serves, even in the smallest way, is honored. If they serve from a willing heart. And the disciples still aren't getting it. And so they, they want to ask, okay, well, who really is one of us, though? I mean, you know, the, those who name the name of Jesus, I get that they, even if they have an insignificant job by our standards, that they're really uh, still important in your eyes. But, you know, we really need to adjudicate who is on the list here. And so they say, teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we said, hey, cut it out. You're not one of us. 
Come on, stop trying to steal my status here. You're not a union member. You haven't paid your dues. What's wrong with you? And Jesus says, no, no. You've got way, way, way too narrow of a focus, guys. You're trying to exclude people who are on your team. He says this, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. In other words, this guy obviously knows me. He's operating in my power. Or whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, Jesus says there's only two camps. There's people who follow Jesus and people who don't. There's not a third category out here somewhere, fellas. Of people who, fo- who follow Jesus but aren't part of your little group. There's people who follow Jesus and people who don't. And, th- and this guy obviously is a follower of Jesus. Because who's, who's going to go around casting out demons in the name of Jesus except a follower of Jesus? The fact that you don't recognize him as a fellow follower of Jesus is irrelevant because I recognize him as being part of the team. And they're so concerned about status and about who ranks where that they miss out seeing this fellow as one of theirs, as a brother in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. In other words, you thought children's ministry was insignificant? How about somebody who gives you some water? I mean, is that like major effort, right? How much effort does it take to, to fill up a plastic cup out of the fountain and say, because you belong to Jesus, I want to honor you with what I have? Not much, right? In other words, Jesus notices and regards as significant even the most insignificant things if they're done in a way to honor him. All right. Um, Now, these last verses, verse 42 to 50, contain some of the scariest material in your New Testament. Amen? If this doesn't scare you just a little bit, you're not understanding it right. And the last two verses, verses 49 and 50, are some of the most debated, misunderstood, argued about verses in the entire Bible. Okay, there are 15 different options that are suggested for those last two verses as to what they mean. I'm going to give you what I think, okay, after a minute here. Uh, Look at verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, he's still got this kid, one of these little ones, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone around his neck. This is what he's saying. Uh, Jesus is saying a couple of things. Number one, kids matter to God. They matter a lot to God. Uh, Their faith in Jesus is just as precious in the sight of God as your faith and my faith and anybody else's faith. Kids matter. Um, And he's also teaching that God is completely, totally unalterably, unchangeably holy in his wrath against sin. There is no such thing as a little sin. 
There's no such thing. In our world, you see, you see kind of a version of justice that gets done, right? A rich guy, maybe an actor, uh, gets stopped for driving under the influence. He gets 90 days probation and 200 hours of community service, right? Unknown fella goes to prison. Guy who steals a car goes to jail. A guy who makes off with billions of his investors' money lives out his days in Bermuda. Right? We don't see justice a lot of times in our world, right? But Jesus says that God does not judge that way, that there is a single standard. And it doesn't matter whether the sin is great or small, he judges. In fact, he says that it would be better for you if you cause a little kid to go into sin. Be better for you to have a large millstone. And, and the word for large millstone there, or actually it's two words, it actually means a donkey millstone. Okay, It's one that's so big you've got to have a, a, a pack animal to pull it. Okay? To have that tied around your neck and be dropped into the ocean, okay? Now, the fall hurts, number one, right? When that rope goes tight as they let go of that rock, that's a bad, that's a bad scene, okay? And then if you survive having your head snapped off, uh, you go into the ocean and all the way to the bottom where the crabs eat you. And Jesus says it would be better to have that happen to you than what God does in his wrath against sin. And so he says this. He says that sin is so serious. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Now, let me ask a question. Can a one-eyed, hook-handed, peg-legged man still sin? Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, I think, in, I think that's how Captain Hook looks, right? Peg-leg, hook, eye patch, right? Um can those guys still sin? Yes. Is Jesus saying, this is what you need to do? No. Because what is the problem with us as we sin? I'll tell you, Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way. He said this, the line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? In other words, it's not that you're cutting off. It's not that by cutting off something that you're necessarily doing wrong. It's just that you're cutting off the wrong things, right? Your hand doesn't cause you to sin. Your heart does. Your foot doesn't cause you to sin. Your heart does. Your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Your dark heart inside you does. And Jesus is using very hyperbolic statements to get at how extreme you ought to be in your holiness against sin. In other words, 
that there is no sin that is worth going to hell over. There's not one thing that is so enjoyable that it is worth your eternal soul. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of status. There's no amount of plastic surgery to make you beautiful. There's no amount of anything that you could have that would be worth going to hell over. There's nothing that's worth exchanging your soul. You know, the old legend of the blues guitarist Robert Johnson is that he met the devil at a crossroads and sold his soul for guitar lessons. Okay? Jesus says, far better to chop off your hands, to chop off your feet, to pluck out your eyeballs than to go to hell. In other words, it's going to take a whole lot more than guitar lessons, or it ought to, if you see sin the way that Jesus sees it and see God's wrath against it with the holiness that he sees it with. He says the worm, he quotes Isaiah, he says the worm does not die. And he says their worm, in other words, it's a personalized worm. In other words, you all get one if you go there, okay? does not die, and the fire never goes out. In other words, when you go to hell, you're eternally suffering. Heard one guy say it like this, imagine Mount Everest, and every billion years, a sparrow flies by and sharpens his beak on the top of it. When the time comes that that sparrow has worn his beak uh, has sharpened his beak enough times to wear down the mountain to a piece of pea gravel. Eternity has just started. Eternity in hell is a very long time. Amen? There is nothing worth your soul. Nothing. Nothing worth your soul. It is not worth it. God does not judge on the curve. He judges on an absolute standard. And all who rebel against him without saving blood of Christ covering over them go to hell. Scary. And eternal. And awful. In fact, the word Jesus uses that describes Gehenna uh, is, is a Greek transliteration of two Hebrew words, Gehimnon. Okay? Uh, it means the Valley of Himnon. The Valley of Himnon was the place outside of Jerusalem where they burned the garbage. Okay? And so there were maggots, because all the garbage is rotting, and they're setting it on fire, so it's burning. And so Jesus, I don't know if this is a literal description of what hell is like or not, whether there's literally fire and there are literally maggots that eat you, for eternity, but if it's not a literal description, I'll tell you this, that the reality that underlies the metaphor is as bad, okay? This is a sobering, difficult, hard text. Um, now, verse 49 and 50, I told you I'd get to these. Uh, verse 49 Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, 
like I say, there's about 15 different interpretations. I think that what Jesus is talking about, verse 49 there, is the idea of sacrifice, that, there, that every person is somehow going to glorify God one way or the other. Uh, because in the Old Testament, when you made your sacrifice before God on his altar, you added salt to the sacrifice. And so Jesus carries that idea and says, you're going to glorify God one way or the other because every person passes through the fire of God's judgment one way or the other. Okay, uh, Let me just give you briefly here in the time we have where those are. Unbelievers glorify God in his holiness and wrath against sin and hell. Okay? Believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 3, it says that the fire will test the quality of each man's work, of what he has built, whether gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. If what he has built survives, he will have a reward. If what he has built is burned up, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. Okay? So everyone is tested by fire, and you make your sacrifice to God, and you either are sacrificed to his holiness and wrath or a testament of his love and grace. You get two trees like you know, to glorify God on, right? Judas glorified God in a certain way, hanging in a suicide because of his remorse for his sin. But he glorified God in a certain way, that his sin was such that he deserved to die. Peter glorified him too, hanging upside down on a cross because he did not deserve to be killed like his Lord. You can either be a sacrifice to honor or to dishonor, and you get to choose which it's going to be. A momentary fire that tests the quality of your work to honor the Lord or an eternal fire to the wrath of God, one or the other. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, uh, last one. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, in Israel, the place that you gathered salt from primarily was around the Dead Sea. It would wash up and crystallize on these rocks and stuff around the, the Dead Sea, and you would gather it there. But the salt around that area is mixed with a lot of minerals. Uh, one of the major ones is gypsum, which is what you make drywall out of, okay? And if you leave that salt that's mixed with impurities in a pile, over time, exposure to moisture will cause all the salt to leach out and leave you with the minerals. Now, who, you know, who wants to put drywall dust on their food? Not me, okay? Uh, but salt is pretty good, right? Makes the steak taste good. Um, Jesus is saying that, there, that you need to have salt in yourself. Salt is also a preservative, right? To have salt in yourselves is to have that which will preserve you through the fire of God's judgment, right? And it is to have your allegiance to Jesus. And one of the ways that you know that you have, in fact, salt in yourselves, which will keep you from the judgment of God that lasts forever, is that you, first of all, are at peace 
with one another. In other words, if you're the kind of person who is always fighting with everybody else in the body of Christ, could be a chance you're not really part of the body of Christ. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? There are people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, and yet they do not possess within themselves any actual salt. They speak in the terms of their commitment to Christ always in the past tense. Yeah, I used to do that. I remember I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I went to church, I attended Sunday school in VBS, I grew up, I went to Awana, but it's my Christian days were kind of a phase I was going through. And now I don't do that anymore. And if you meet one of these people, very often you cannot convince them to repent and turn back to Christ. It is as difficult to get them to repent and turn to Christ as it is to put salt back in those minerals after it's left. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Have in yourselves the allegiance to Jesus that is eternal and lasts forever, the real faith which will preserve you from God's judgment. Okay, um, now just we're out of time, but I'll just give you a couple quick um, points of application here. Where do you rank on Jesus' scale? If you were to put yourself, you know, like our kids, they always want to know how tall they are, and I I have become the yardstick at our house. Okay, they come up to me and they go, "Hey, I'm up to Dad's chest, yeah, you know, I'm up to his shoulders, you know, whatever." Um, we don't mark on the walls, uh, but they they like to judge where they are based on dad, which is fine. But if you were to stand next to Jesus, how tall would you be based on how well you serve? Jesus says, if you want to be great, you want to be great big from a spiritual perspective, then serve most and with the most willing heart. Even in insignificant areas, where do you rank? How big are you? Question number two, when you look at your life and you consider your heart, how are you going to glorify God? As a living sacrifice or one facing eternal death? As an object of honor or of dishonor, of glory or of wrath? Going to be Judas or Peter? Both die. One brings glory and honor and praise to God and one is an object of his wrath for eternity. God will either be vindicated in your life in his love or his, his justice, one or the other. Which do you want it to be? Which is it going to be if you died today? Last question, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is a very, very big deal. I cannot underline to you enough how much of a big deal this is. Jesus says one of the primary ways you know whether you are in the faith is whether you are living at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if the answer is no, that does not say good things about whether or not you possess genuine faith. So be at peace. Have salt in yourselves. Let's pray.